I am so excited to invite you to one of the biggest online autism events for 2019, the Autism Summit. You'll find it at autismsummit.com.au. Many people still think that routine is where you want to go. It's not. You stay with the same thing and do it over and over again. You do not progress. Talk to adults with autism and I say, okay, guys, what are your greatest challenges? Is it the sensory? Is it the social? Is it getting a job or a relationship? And they nearly always say, no, it's none of those, Tony. It's managing my anxiety. The behaviour is always, always a byproduct of what is going on in the brain. So if the child is dysregulated, it tells us something about their brain. It doesn't tell us that we need to help them manage their behaviours. The differences between autistic and non-autistic communication are significant. And I always see it as a different language. I see it as a, a cultural difference more than anything else. So it's not that we're doing anything wrong, but we do do things differently. And to understand that is really important. Their social skills don't have to be neatly wrapped up by 18. That's, that's not real. Sometimes this area is about expectations. We're not trying to create social butterflies. We're trying to create people who have some confidence. I now insist that it be done the other way around. You interview the principal, what will you do in this scenario? What's the support look like? Because the funding exists, they do access it and it needs to be funneled or channeled towards your child. But if we've got stuff happening in our gut and it's affecting our brain through those toxins, we can't work on our language and we can't work on our social skills. Everyone needs to either avoid processed food or learn how to read the new deliberately confusing food labels that are changing all the time. Firstly, tolerate the food and then be able to interact with it, which might mean poking it with a fork or touching it with another food. Welcome to the Online Autism Summit. I am so glad you're here. Whether you're new to the world of autism or if you've been here for a little while now, we have so much for you to explore. You'll need to get out your calendars and mark it in there straight away because it will be live streaming and free to access from the 1st to the 5th of April. And if you don't know already, this will be during Autism Awareness Week. Now, I have gathered together 20 leading world experts, extraordinary parents, as well as people on the spectrum. And we cover a whole range of topics that are relevant to every child with autism, including behaviours, anxiety, sensory processing, diet and lifestyle. We look at school and homeschooling, employment, and different kinds of therapy and really just so much more. It is this beautiful space where people are coming together with different perspectives and sharing their knowledge and their stories. And you will leave feeling absolutely empowered and inspired. Now you do have the option of being able to purchase lifetime access to these 20 interviews at really cheap early bird prices. So that is if you purchase before April. When you purchase this summit, you're able to pause and take notes. You can rewind and you can watch the interviews in your own time. You also get access to special NDIS interviews that you can't watch during the free, um, during the free summit period. Now, if you are listening to this podcast sometime in the future, don't stress. 
The Autism Summit will continue to live on and be available at autismsummit.com.au. I cannot wait to see you there. Please check it out. Head over, have a look at the welcome video that we've created. It is amazing and it just really sums up what we're trying to do and that is really bring this autism community together. So autismsummit.com.au. Welcome to Homebase Hope, all about autism, the show that invites you to think differently, inspires you to take a whole child approach, and most of all, instills hope when it comes to your child and autism. I'm your host, Rhiannon Crisp, from homebasehope.com.au. Let's get into it. Welcome back, guys. I am super excited about today's podcast because we're talking all about how to make school a success. And the amazing Sue Larkey is joining us on the show. So I was actually subscribed to Sue's newsletter about seven years ago, soaking up all her knowledge and wisdom when I had my first pediatric caseload when I was working at a special development school down in Victoria. And I have just always absolutely loved Sue's ideas because they're very practical. She's very realistic in her approach and she just makes everything make sense. So I'm guessing most of our Australian audience is familiar with Sue, but just in case she has slipped under your radar, Sue Larkey is an educator who has taught students with autism at both mainstream primary schools and special education schools. She combines practical experience with extensive research, having completed her master's in special education. Sue's mission is to inspire parents and educators and to teach them how to make it a success. Welcome, Sue. Thank you so much. What a great introduction. Wow, I've got to live up to that now. So I'm feeling inspired. So thanks uh, for reading all my newsletters and tips. And um, if anyone is new to my staff, the, the key is I try and send through like 10 tips and just try two. Don't overwhelm yourself. And I think that's the thing I really want you to take away from today. It's about being eclectic and working out what works for you and your child or your classroom. And really just try two things at a time. I think we can get a little bit overwhelmed and my tip sheets and strategies are all about just try a couple of things. And also it's actually good to read the tip sheets and go try to try to done it because I think we tend to always look for new stuff. So I'd love people today to even sit there nodding their head going, I've done that or I tried that. And even trying it, if it didn't work, doesn't matter. You gave it a go. So that's what I'd really love people to take away from today. Just some practical strategies, but also a bit of confirmation and reflection on what's working and what's not working yeah Mm, I love that and you know what it could be tried it tried it and it's not right right now but it could be right a year from now how many times I put strategies away and then I try them it's like why didn't it work two years ago but you know everything comes at the right time and so absolutely love that okay so I'd love to talk a little bit about your journey so we always rewind the clock a little bit And just find out how you became so passionate about working with kids on the spectrum. Oh, well, my absolute passion came from 30 years ago. I can't believe it's 30 years, but I have to own up to that. And um, I was teaching in Adelaide, actually, in South Australia, and I was a first-year-out teacher, and I had 25 five-year-olds in my class and the most beautiful little boy called Michael, who is what we call classic autism. 30 years ago, we only diagnosed that end of the spectrum. So 
if you can imagine this beautiful little Italian boy who was English as a second language, who was hands flapping, toe walking, as you would know, sensory seeking because he was in a classroom with 25 children and he'd come from home just with him and Nonna. He was nonverbal. He did develop some echolalia over my time with him, but initially he was nonverbal when I first started working with him. And hate to say it, there was nothing like this out there. There was no podcast. There was no internet. Can you believe it? They've only just celebrating, I think last week, 30 years of the World Wide Web. So there was really nothing. And all I'd learn at um, uni was probably a 20-minute what is autism. Um, and so I knew he had autism, but I totally didn't know what to do. Um, so I really started out of complete stress. I, I, I mean, I can't tell you how stressed I was because I adored him, but I just didn't know what to do. And many parents would have felt that feeling. Like you get told autism and then you're like, well, what next? What do I do? You know, like, what does this mean? So I was a little bit like that rabbit in the headlight trying to work out how to help him, but also being a first year teacher and having 24 diverse kids in my class. So that high dynamic. And For parents listening, I'd really just like to remind you that your children often are really different at home and I have no doubt Michael and his nonna had a way of communicating. But in a classroom with 25 children, many of our children, because of the sensory and social, we see very different behaviours and that was true of Michael. I had far more uncontrollable crying and sensory meltdowns, which I now know but I didn't know at the time. him really being in a fetal position, you know, and it was distressing. Bottom line, it was distressing. So anyway, had a long story short, I basically, he's been my inspiration for 30 years, but I'll be honest and say, I thought, oh, look, I'll go and do my master's and my school principal um, supported me in that and I'll work out autism. I still haven't worked out autism. <laughs> Which, like, I really thought like I'd figure it out. I don't know what I was thinking, but Honestly, you know, my three golden rules are, which I wish I'd known with Michael, every child's different. Like I thought I'd work out autism, do my master's and I'd be able to teach any child with autism and I'm still meeting kids that I'm learning from. So that every child's different. Strategies wear out, which was a big one. Like things would work for a little while with Michael and then they'd stop working and I'd get really disheartened. I I mean, like really upset. And often be like, why isn't it working anymore? Instead of thinking, that's worn out, what can we do now? Which you would with neurodiverse kids, by the way, with, with other children, with neurotypical kids, you know, parents change stuff up all the time. But for some reason with autism, I had a bit of a, I'm going to find a solution and stick with it. And I mean, I have three kids myself, different things work at different phases for different kids. So strategies wear out and that not every strategy works for everybody. Like there wasn't a golden nugget that was going to change everything for Michael at all. It was a real combination of strategies. And so I ended up keeping him for two years. And actually, I know that about kids like Michael now, um, nonverbal kids particularly, I would encourage them to have the same teacher aid for a couple of years, same teacher for a couple of years. It takes time to build that relationship to a point that they can relax and engage and they're ready for you and you're ready for them, I suppose. So schools tend to mix it up far too regularly from the kids I love on the spectrum, yeah. Mm, What a journey. And (laughs) what I found so interesting about what you said then and it totally resonated with me is that one, you know, every child is different and we can't come at it with this same cookie-cutter approach for every child. 
we know that um, autism is so complex and we need to work out what the right fit is for your child right now, like at this point in time. Mm. You know, and that's why, you know, I'd really just say work on two things. And whether you're a teacher, teacher aide, parent, just two things. That's enough because otherwise you're not consistent too. You get keep going off on all directions. So you're not giving that strategy a go. No matter what strategy you try, I think just try two things, do it for a good week and then go with your gut. Like I'm a real gut feel sort of person, whether something's helping or not. But I think you've got to give things a good week of a go before so you've had enough repetition, routine, the child's used to it, and then you start to see if it's going to work or not, I think, for me anyway. Yeah. Mm, absolutely. And if you try and incorporate too many strategies at the one time because you're getting bombarded with OT and speech and teacher input, you know, you're not going to be consistent with any of them. So if you can pick the two that resonate with you most and then and then go from there. Yeah. I always think this is how I, my normal benchmark, if I'm feeling overwhelmed, imagine how the kid's feeling. So if I'm feeling like there's so much to do, imagine how much they're feeling they've got to do. So always put it like that. Like if you're feeling stressed or overwhelmed, these kids absolutely pick up on that. But if you feel like I haven't got time, they are feeling like that too. So just move it back a bit. You know, you don't have to do everything today. And um, it's hard, I know, because you want to, but sometimes it's better just baby steps. Absolutely. Okay, so you have worked with, probably hundreds or thousands, who knows, heaps heaps. of kids. I know I I did a count a couple of years ago and I just sort of went, it's thousands, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So you have obviously seen a lot of different classroom environments and a lot of different challenges that kids face in the classroom. Could you talk to us about some of the common challenges that you see? Look, for me, the biggest challenge is people seeing their autism spectrum and so I remember many years ago, actually, when I was in Melbourne, I was driving along and on the ABC during Autism Awareness Month, a young lady had rung in and she said, look, I've got two siblings. I've got a brother with Down syndrome and a brother with autism. And my brother with Down syndrome is lucky because people can see it. And I would say in schools, that's my biggest challenge and struggle. And I'm embarrassed sometimes to call people my colleagues, I'll be honest, because they just can't see that this kid is doing their best and they're trying so hard. And I can't help but ask myself sometimes, if that child had Down syndrome, would you be being as hard on them? And I'm not comparing the challenges. I'm just trying to say what I think my biggest challenge is, getting people to see because, honestly, they can't see it, you know, and getting people to see this child's sensory, social, emotional, you know, really understanding that this child needs our support because um, I just think people can't see it. I don't know your experience, but even for parents, when you're in the supermarket, you know, people can't see how your child is functioning in that environment and then they start judging you. And that's what I hate, that judgment, judging these kids because I love them so much and I know if you put in place the right stuff, it makes a huge difference, but it's getting people past that judging that they should know. Like when people go to me, they should know how to do it. It's like, are you kidding me? You should know they need help. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. I'll let that high horse run away. You've opened up a Pandora's box. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, it is the invisible, quote-unquote, disability. Yeah. And so we can't actually see it. So it's not like they are in a wheelchair and we're able to sort of know 
you know, we can sort of guess what some of their needs might be. Correct. So it is, it is very different and it does, it makes it super challenging for educators and for therapists and um, the general community because we can't see it. So I think a lot of it comes back to that advocacy and advocating for your child and speaking up on their behalf and um, talking to people about their strengths and what they can do and what their abilities are, but also what they need help with. Mm. Yeah. And I think for families just on that, that strengths, because I'm so into these kids' strengths and building on that. But unfortunately, when they go to meetings, and this is where, again, I think schools have got all a bit backward. And I mean, I'm a teacher, guys, but it doesn't mean I can't look at the system and go, this is really crazy. It's so negative. It's all um, negative-based support. And I know that to get funding, it makes sense. But sometimes I think I like to sit in meetings and start, always start a meeting with what's working, what are the kids' strengths, and then get into the, okay, where, what are our challenges? What are the supports we need? And I'd really encourage parents to always start any meeting with, here's what my kids' real strengths are and what's working. And then let's talk about what's not working. But I, I hate it when they're just draining and parents here would listening would know that they end up in tears in the car after and I don't blame them. I can tell you as a teacher how many times I've ended up in tears too because you're trying to advocate for a child but the system wants you to be so negative and that can be frustrating and I'm sure you've seen that too. Yeah. Mm, absolutely. Um, one of the other challenges on, on our topic of challenges is anxiety and I wanted to dive into that a little bit. Um, because, uh, this is, this can be massive. What might we see in a kid who is anxious at school and what does it mean for them? Can you give us some, yeah. This is my absolute favorite thing. I always said all my workshops were starting with anxiety because the truth is until people understand the anxiety, then until you get the child's anxiety down, for example, you don't see their sense of humor. Every one of those 3,000 plus kids I've worked with has the most amazing sense of humour. And that's something, again, you don't see on the diagnostics. So you, you can't see their humour and their fun and their all of that until their anxiety is down. So uh, knowing their anxiety, what their triggers are, whether it's sensory, social, um, a change of routine, all children have different triggers for anxiety. With, without a doubt, there are different things, just like you and me, you know, like some people would find, doing something like this, really easy. For me, I've been pacing around all morning, worried, checking my watch, you know. So I think it's really helpful to look at yourself with anxiety and think, how does it impact on you? Does it impact on your sleep? Does it impact on your eating? Because I have kids who don't eat all day at school. Can you imagine the impact on learning from not eating? I have kids who isolate themselves and it's not that they don't want friends, it's just they're anxious about, making connections and how that works and you know think of yourself when you go to a party and you know no one how do you react how do you um find people to talk to but you actually don't have a social um trying to hate the word disorder or deficit but you've got some natural social skills and i do believe it's natural social skills asd kids have to learn it and so often what they've learned might work in the playground because the playground's different to home or with your cousins or your neighbors you know so for me, that anxiety can be on so many levels, but we really need to look at how to address that anxiety and notice it in the kids. So that is about developing that relationship. So I have kids who just the fact, the tone of voice when they come in in the morning, 
the way they say hello to me or they might repetitively say hello to me, you know, or they might be carrying their backpack or kicking their backpack or in high school, everything's falling out of their backpack. You know, I often look for those physical things that tell you something's not quite right today. And again, that's why you've really got to get to know the kid over a couple of years. So with Michael, for example, looking back, Without a doubt, his hand flapping, he had happy hand flapping, flapping and he had anxious hand flapping. And the anxious one had more of a humming noise that went with it. So there's an example where that was his individual stress. And you and I would know he was doing stimming to calm himself. But for those of you who don't know, self-stimulation is often a key that the child's getting anxious. And they're trying to calm themselves. And this is why it's so important because if you try and stop that behaviour, you know often people try and stop a child doing that well of course they're going to hit you they're trying to calm themselves so for me it's really about recognizing their anxiety which we all have but for these kids often is expressed in different ways and then putting in place strategies so for Michael what looking back what I did innately but I didn't understand it at the time was moving all the other children away giving him some space often putting his favourite little um, Bob the Builder, was quite popular 30 years ago, dare I say, you know, his little Bob the Builder book there and, you know, like giving him things that he could access then to calm. And surprisingly, and this is what I know about many kids on the spectrum, he would join us when he was ready. You know, like so many of these kids can actually self-regulate. It's just we get in the way of it. Um, so he'd come into the group when he was ready. I've had other kids who find it hard to, I suppose, I hate the word high functioning, but more verbal kids and kids who engage quite, quite well in my classroom who when they get anxious, I need to sort of create a way for them to come back into the group. They can't bring themselves back in. And I'd say they're sometimes embarrassed by behaviour and things. So I normally use a job, like sending them to the office with a supportive peer so that sort of helps them back into the group without having to be noticeably come into the group. But again, think of yourself. You ever walked into a room when 100 people are learning and one person walks in, everyone turns around. And I'm pretty sure that's what's happened to those kids in the past. So they're fearful everyone's going to notice them when really they just want to come back in quietly. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you touched on a really important point there that I want to sort of expand on um, because I think a lot of the behaviours that can sometimes be associated with anxiety are misunderstood. So yeah. um, anxiety obviously presents differently in different kids. So some kids might be withdrawn and in this case we, we usually assume they have anxiety or they're stressed out. So our response is to go up, to comfort them, to be empathetic and ask them if they're okay. But for in the example, if they hit out or they lash out at someone, um, we don't tend to look at the underlying trigger and we just assume that they're naughty or um, they're being defiant and we'll tend to discipline them for that instead of putting on those detective glasses and working out why that behaviour has occurred in the first place. Yeah. Look... I tend to find discipline doesn't really work for kids on the spectrum. I, consequences rarely work. I mean, normally when they're really anxious, there's no cognitive intent. They haven't meant to do anything they did. And in fact, you can really ruin your rapport and relationship with a kid if you go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> because many of my kids, like the current school system for behaviour, 
often actually causes quite negative relationships with the student. So I tend to find it's better to give them the strategies that help. And it's nicer too. I don't want to get into that negative. Well, that's not my style. It's not my style as a parent, a person. And I think kids on the spectrum are actually adult learners. So how would you want your friends to treat you? You've all had a meltdown or a moment with your family or a Christmas Day moment. How would you like it if they stood you up in front of the whole family and got you to apologise? Like, really? Would you want to do it? Like, I don't know. Am I crazy? But sometimes I look at what people are asking children to do and go, well, this kid thinks more like an adult, actually. They're quite logical. I don't think they'd want to do that. I, you know, I, I guess my golden rule is what is the educational outcome? What, what is your goal when a child is anxious and you put that strat? What, what is your goal? Isn't your goal the child's, their, their, you know, their that we improve the behaviour next time? We can't change what's happened, but what can we do next time to ensure that that doesn't happen? And, um, I, and look, it's a big time issue in schools without a doubt that they're busy and don't always have the time to do it. But sometimes I find it's, you know, some of my kids the next day really don't even know what happened. I'm best just to let it rest and maybe then give them the skills. So, for example, like one of my little boys, Finn, you know, always wants to be first and rush to the door and first on the mat and first everywhere. And, you know, truth is, how good? He actually wants to be part of the group. He wants to be first. He wants to, you know, we want to work on him not being first. And sometimes he pushes other kids trying to be first and he wants to be part of it all and you know I, I think I'm better off doing social scripts and explaining that sometimes we're first sometimes we're not explain to him that children don't like it when they get pushed and they're there first and maybe doing some role playing and I like using my iPad and doing little videos personally I'd much rather be doing that than sitting him out asking him to reflect on what he did and what's wrong with that because I don't think Finn would actually have the skills to do that because mm. he'd be like well what did I do wrong so for me, I like the proactive, you know, and what's the educational outcome? Well, giving him some strategies and reminders. And even before we line up saying to him, hey, Finn, remember today, Jessica and James are at the front of the line. You're second today and that's okay, you know, and reminding him what we've planned. That's anyway. That's my way. I love that because you're actually engaging his brain and getting him to problem solve, you know, what can we do next time? or um, with some of the strategies that you mentioned, you're actually involving him in that. Whereas if you're just getting him up to say, sorry, you know, it's just that, <laughs> oh, you know, it's, it's not teaching him. It's not helping him with that. Yeah. Yeah. So find a better way. Exactly. But, mm, okay. So what are some of the supports that we can use for kids with anxiety? Like are there any um, physical tools or strategies that we can use for kids? Yeah. Well, look, I look at it completely like my glasses everyone has a different script. So you have to work out that child's script. So some of my kids who are saying who mightn't eat all day, well, maybe looking at sending them on a break to have a little snack because some of the ADHD kids I work with eat best what I call grazing, like when they're moving. So send them off to eat a packet of barbecue shapes or whatever they eat or their sandwich, but sitting in a room with 30 kids eating Often they have misophobia, which is that sound sensitivity to other kids crunching and eating. So they just, they really can't eat in that environment. So, you know, giving them a preventative break of a, of a toilet break, snack break, um, drink break, movement break. Like I've got a little boy, Matthew, who goes and throws eight bean bags, um, does star jumps, you know, 
but we've worked out what works for him. He takes the time timer outside the classroom, puts it on for five minutes. And for him this year, when we were looking at transition, the key was to make sure he wasn't in a portable because a lot of portables then have a big open space and he just gets excited and runs off, which I don't blame him. There's all that grass and no one there. Why not? So we had to make sure he had a classroom with a corridor outside where he could go and do that self-regulation. So for me, some children need movement, you know, um, but some of my children need quiet time. Some of my girls in particular actually like to just sit and read. I've got a little girl this year who likes to just sit up the back and watch everybody but not be involved um, when she's getting anxious. Like just, it's like, I don't know, some, sometimes all of us like to just sit back and watch. And I think for her that actually helps her anxiety. But when she's part of it, she gets quite overwhelmed and is selective mute. So her language will really shut down and and she's a real shut down and just a reminder to people that shutdowns are as big as meltdowns for these kids they can the child has a shutdown it can take a good hour for them to recover just like a meltdown so for her allowing her time to sit up the back often listening to music sometimes watching the group that's what she needs so it, it really is like glasses and just like my glasses dare I say as I'm getting older get replaced every year some children need more regular replacements of what works um, and some people need glasses all day and some just need them for reading. Some children only need a sensory tool when we go to assembly. Some children might need a sensory tool, you know, all day. It really depends on the child. Um, and for me, that's where I'd turn to you <laughs> and get a good occupational therapist to really help me know, oops, sorry, what overstimulates and understimulates that child, what they need to feel good um and I really get guided by my OTs so much and for parents I work with a lot of parents in regional Australia who don't have access to an OT and I would say to them even if you can just go for an assessment and get some of that feedback for schools it really makes a massive difference just to understand the child's strengths what they need to self-regulate um so even if you can't have ongoing OT I would recommend a good assessment and just knowing where the child's at. And again, just review that every couple of years because the kids do change. Mm. I know you are a big lover of sensory tools. Yes. What are some of your favourites for the classroom? Look, I have one on my desk right now. <laughs> I, was on, I was on hold to uh, Telstra the other day and I tell you, this kept me calm. <laughs> Look what I've got. I've got a whole ray on my desk. I can't do <laughs> Um, yeah, so the wooden hand massager for my kids, for my older kids particularly, secondary school kids, these are lovely because they can just have it in their pocket. Um, some of my kids actually do this. And an adult on the spectrum introduced these to me originally. I talk to, I really find parents and people on the spectrum my best advocates for what to use and how they use it. Um, they give me amazing information, um, you know, like, cutting the labels out of clothes. I mean, you ask any people on the spectrum, they'll tell you it's not just that, it's actually the overlocking in their clothes, you know. So I could give a kid a 100 sensory tools, but if they've got label in their clothes and horrible overlocking, you know, it's horrible. And parents listening, please don't ever buy a uniform firsthand. Go to the uniform shop. Get the secondhand uniforms that have been worn a 1,000 times or wash it 500 times. Putting a brand-new starchy school uniform on most of my kids they're not going to be up to sit, you know. So just things like that. I think sensory is not just the tools. It's thinking about clothing, 
It's thinking about overlocking in socks. It, a whole lot of that stuff impacts on learning and engagement in a busy school setting, you know, yeah. Mm. And do you recommend like micro environments or calming spaces in the classroom? Absolutely. I think every kid needs them. I actually think schools are so busy. All kids need that. Um, so look, I've used lots of different things over the years from tents to, uh, you know, just a tablecloth strategically over a table. I, I use that a lot in schools, just getting like a really heavy tablecloth and putting it over a table. I, if you're in Australia, Kmart have really good, heavy, cheap tablecloths that you can, you know, put over the table. You know, I, I use lots of different things like that. But also, again, looking at somewhere outside your room or a little room off your room or if you've got a cupboard that's meant to be storage, some of my kids like that dark, quiet spot. Um, and I think that the classroom structure, can't you can't underestimate what it's like to be in a classroom all day with 30 kids. Like, can you imagine being in a workplace? People complain about open offices. Imagine <laughs> 30 learners in one tiny room. Like I go into corporate offices sometimes and they're massive and they're whinging that they want petitions up. Imagine being in a classroom. I don't know. I just go, are you kidding me? Like 30 learners or like they're sloshed in a room, especially by year five, six, right? And like imagine when they're getting all the BO and, oh, you know, I mean, I don't know. Call me crazy. I keep saying that, but I, th I think we should call this the Call Me Crazy podcast. <laughs> You know, put yourself in that kid's shoes. Of course you're going to need a little room to go and work. Of course you want to go under the table or, you know, take off your shoes and socks to sort of try and get grounded in your learning. And, again, that's a real choose your battles. Is the kid doing the work? Are they outside the, cl the classroom? doesn't really matter. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's about working out what works for them and being flexible in that approach as well. Yeah, yeah. So another topic I want to transition to is transitions, funnily enough. Um, this can be a big one for kids with autism and anxiety. Yeah. Can we talk about what transitions actually are? Because um, this will come up a lot, but, you know, defining what it is and giving us some examples of what a transition at school might look like and then what can we do to help support kids with transitions? Fantastic. So the big thing about transitions, people forget transitions from sitting on the mat to sitting at your desk, from sitting at your desk to lighting up at the door, from, I mean, I just had an email from a school this morning and a boy's hitting kids on the way back from lunchtime. Well, I would say that's anxiety around a transition, that end of play, it's over, Bill's probably gone off, 100 things. So if it's, people tend to think the big transitions from one year level to the next. For me, it's all the micro transitions that make the biggest impact. And also it can be a bit of a compound effect. So a kid comes in, relief teacher in the room then instead of sitting on the mat they sit at their desk you know like all of those things and then the child has a meltdown by lunchtime well it's actually all those transitions so for me transition is any time the child has to problem solve where am I going to sit what page do I need to open in my book who am I going to work with so any time a child has to problem solve is a transition and for kids on the spectrum Problem solving, so anxiety and problem solving to me are their two biggest challenges. So a child has to problem solve, like, well, where's my pencil? Where's my book? You know, all of those things add anxiety. So that's why, dare I say, routine, routine, routine. You know, like have a set spot on the mat, have a 
special sensory mat for them there so that they've already got that ready and they don't have to think to bring their sensory tool. When they go back to their desk, having a bookmark in their book and their pencil ready rather than having to find the pencil. So I have this argument a lot with people, but, you know, I run workshops every week and adults turn up without a pen. I don't think it's a life skill to have a pen. Like I'm quite happy to provide the pencil or pen for the kid because my goal is they do the work. My goal is the child sits on the mat, not chooses a spot on the mat. So I think in transition, reduce choices, routines, and have as many structures in place as possible, whether they're sensory, whether they're having the pencil and book ready. Now, don't get me wrong, I still want that child to learn problem solving, but the problem solving might be in the work or the problem solving might be on doing a group task and working with another child. Because for many of my kids learning to work with other children, that's a big enough transition or change. So I personally think, you know, letting the kid know, like Finn, where he's going to be in the line. Um, that little boy who's having the um, anxiety coming back to the classroom, I need to talk to that school this week. But I would be really checking in whether it's the bell or whether it's 500 kids running all at the same time. Like what happens when the bell goes? Does everyone start manically going, ah? sure to set him off (laughs) you know I'm not laughing you know I'm laughing at how ridiculous that we put these kids because I just move in in five minutes before or I have kids who actually ring the school bell um, or I have them do jobs like pack up the equipment so that they're not part of that 500 kids moving so to me that's what transition is Um, but the most important transition is that home to school in the morning and parents I can't emphasize enough the pivotal role you play in helping your child come to school calm and you know I can do a lot as a teacher but if your kid hasn't had sleep hasn't had breakfast hasn't had some exercise and fresh air dare I say can I encourage parents to walk with their children to school do you remember I don't know call me weird in the 70s my mother never thought oh it's raining I better go and pick Sue up like we all walked we got fresh air and you know the research is pretty clear that exercise and movement is as good as anxiety medication so we need to get kids moving and at school we can do so much but if your child's just gone home sat in front of tv all night um you know gone to bed late that is going to have massive impact on their engagement the next morning and look don't get me wrong sleep is really hard for asd kids i have tried to write a book on sleep for asd kids and can i tell you I just go in circles because it's so different for each kid. So anyway, but I'm not saying it's easy, but if you can put in place some routines and strategies and just keep working on the child sleeping, eating and moving, I think that helps them then have a good day at school. Mm, I love that. And I love two things I want to touch on. The first one was movement and that is key, you know, particularly in today's sedentary lifestyle. We're so, as you say, glued to our devices um so getting more movement in the day and nature like you said getting out there and embracing nature we know how amazing that is for us so um definitely including that more into our day Um, dare i say i I heard this a few weeks ago and i really liked it sitting is the new smoking Mm. you know we've got to get up and move so parents i'm not asking you to take your kid for a run around the box just get one of those exercise balls if a kid sits on that, do you know they've got to have their core strength, they're moving, 
you know, even half an hour, even if they're playing Fortnite, if they're on the exercise ball, they're actually better than just sitting still or, you know, get them to stand up to do their homework. That's one of my favourite things. In fact, my computer's on a box at the moment, like getting kids actually standing up to do stuff then they're moving their bodies um, and lots of the schools I go into because I, you know, tend to go in, come on, you know, they get those little pedals the kids can have under their table. There's lots of ways to do movement within your house. I'm not saying you have to get out, just think about how you can introduce it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Just more crazy dancers in the yes. lounge room. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to touch on in terms of routine for kids who have um, difficulty with the transitions, obviously life isn't predictable and life can be obviously in today's day and age very chaotic and we don't know what's going to come at us in the day. Um, So, you know, how important is it that we keep this routine because strategies will change and the day, you know, if we do have that um, substitute teacher or something that doesn't go according to routine, can that be worse because we've set them up to expect something and then it hasn't delivered? I guess, look, it's a great question and I wish I had an answer because some of my kids actually like change and variety, particularly if they have some ADHD and ASD. Those kids aren't going to want repetitive routines. They're going to tell you they're bored and they are. So this is where the spectrum's so big and it depends on the kid. But for me... I think we all have routines. Like notice yourself in the next 24 hours. Do you sleep on the same side of the bed? Do you um, park your car in the same way in your driveway? Well, try backing it in tomorrow. When you'll be going, why? Why do I need to change? And I think that's where a lot of my kids come from. Like why? Why do I need to do that differently? Why do I need a substitute teacher? What? And so just I'd love anyone to just try a few different things. And my guess is you might do it for a day, but you'll go back to your old routines. So my kids who are very rigid and routine driven, if you try and change it, they will go back to their old ways and that's okay. Um, But what I try and do is get kids to manage those routines. So one of my little boys, Nathan, if he has a, we have a what to do if your teacher's away book because that makes him really anxious. And in that book, one of the things to do is to go up in the morning, say hello to the teacher and let the teacher know he has autism spectrum. So the, the script is, hi, I'm Nathan. I have autism spectrum. I don't really like having relief teachers in the room. If you don't mind, I'm going to sit up the back today. Well, to me, that's self-advocacy. It's no different to a child going, hey, I have asthma. I need to sit out for a minute. So I really believe as kids get older, getting them to manage their own routines, just like we all do, is really important. But I just want to go back a step and say that many of my children with nonverbal autism tend to wake up with their day very planned out how it's going to look and the slightest change can set them off and and I really understand that they need a lot of control in their day because they can't communicate and that must be incredibly frustrating because they understand so much. I tend to find children who are verbal have more options to let people know um, whereas non-verbal kids have to use behaviour to say you've swapped my routine. So verbal children, what I find is writing social scripts, helping them have the language to explain, I like to sit in this spot. I like to do this. But also saying to them, sometimes we can't do that. Sometimes things change. But I don't think you should do change for change's sake. I think getting kids used to change is okay, but don't just swap it up every time because driving to school a different way can set a kid off for the rest of the day. 
choose your battles, I guess. Yeah. Mm, thank you. Thank you for explaining that. Um, Cause I know a lot of parents will be thinking that at home, you know, if they do the same thing all the time, what if something goes wrong? You know, I don't want to set them up um, to yeah have a really challenging time when something doesn't go according to plan. Yeah. Yeah. There's one more thing that I want to touch on before we head to our five rapid fire questions. And that is just adjustments for tests. So, um, exams and just even your weekly spelling bee can be really anxiety driven. How can we support kids who have a hard time with this? Yeah. So again, this is when I go back to what's my educational outcome. So weekly spelling bees, I had a girl a couple of years ago who was a poor darling. She was in an open plan classroom. And this really made me realize how anxious things like spelling tests were. She wrote down all three classes spelling tests. Can, can you imagine how stressed because she couldn't differentiate which was her teacher so one of the things i just remind particularly parents your child can hear but they can't always understand so often when a teacher does a spelling test it's verbal which is crazy in this day and age isn't it because actually we write our spelling and we so many of my kids they don't hear or process when a teacher's giving those words and what that little girl made me realize she was hyper focused so she's written down all three spelling lists because she's so hyper-focused. I mean, it's amazing that she could do that. But can you imagine how anxious she was? So all we did with her was send her spelling list home on a Friday so she'd visually seen them because most kids on the spectrum are visual learners. What's my goal? She learns the word. Does it matter she's seen them for the pre-test by Monday? No. And so, so often in tests and exams, I'm asking myself, what's the goal? What are we aiming for here? Do I expect the kid to do the whole test? No. Well, why don't I just circle in green the bits I want them to do first, you know? And ultimately, I want to teach them to look at the test and work out what to do first. But with tests and exams, so often when we're testing something in a, like the spelling, in a different way to actual learning and, and life, and we really do need to choose our battles a bit and ask ourselves what's important. Um, you know, some of my kids, I prefer I record, actually say the spelling words and then they listen to my voice. And there's some great apps out there for that that can help kids actually with their spelling and they can say their words themselves. Um, but I would be cautious of any tests or exams to just expect this child to do it like everyone else. And I guess that comes back to what we talked about at the beginning, that they look like they're coping. They'll have the veneer of coping and be trying to write down the words. But a lot of my kids get really anxious about mistakes. so. When I'm teaching with tests and exams, the key is for me to really come from it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to show the teacher what you've learned. And if you make mistakes, that's okay. Everyone makes mistakes. But I always give kids an opportunity once I've marked their test to go back and fix it up. And I don't put crosses. I put a circle, which is opportunity for learning. And they can go back, look it up, check it up, fix it with a friend. Because so many of my kids, if they get five crosses, that just makes them so upset. They want to get it right. Um, and again, that comes back to problem solving because other kids can go, oh, oh, look, I made a silly mistake there. Whereas most ASD kids would look and go, that was my only answer. They don't have a plan B. So that's where I'd work on. Is that mindset, growth mindset stuff? But I'd encourage parents to have that sort of stuff on their fridge and remind kids all the time, purposely make mistakes, you know, 
go to make someone a coffee and accidentally put a sugar in. That's okay. I can remake it. What's my plan B? Like I'm always talking plan B with the kids and always like, oh, it's okay. You know, we've run out of time. What can our plan B be? And I purposely talk through that sort of problem solving. And again, actually that links back to our when there's a change. If you talk about plan Bs, then when there is a change in routine, your kid will be more ready because they'll go, okay, what's my plan B? And I, I find that very helpful. What's my opportunity here? I love that. And it all comes back to your motto, make it a success. Yeah. Don't give things that are too hard. Um, meet them where they're at and um, work out what's going to work for them. So I absolutely love that. Let's head to our five rapid fire questions. Start to wrap it up. Okay. Um, time will just get away. I could talk for hours to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, number one, what is one habit that all parents can implement today? I actually think it's routines. The more routines, the better, particularly with that bed, sleep, turning off technology, more routines, the better. Everyone's calmer. Can I tell you? Everyone. So routines, 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 and don't worry about your child being stuck on routines. There's flexibility in holidays, but during term, I'd go for routines. Love it. Number two, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? Well, it's funny. I ask myself this and I answer over a hundred emails a day. So I get asked everything. Like you would be amazed some of the questions I get asked. But I guess, you know, the biggest, the biggest thing for me, um, I guess the, actually it's more what question I get asked that drives me a little bit mad. It's almost like, what's their future? I've got three kids. I don't know their future. That's more the questions that, oh, what's going to happen next year? I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen next year with any of us. Like, I just think what, it's not so much what question I wish people asked, but I wish people could be more in the what can I do now, not worrying about what's coming. But I understand for parents that's part of it. I know my own daughter was born without a thyroid and for some reason my mind for the first week was going, can she have babies? What's in the future? You know, but it's so powerful to just really think about what you can do in this situation. You know, it's a bit like the routines. Don't worry about if there's a change. Let's just work on the routine. Yeah. Awesome. Number three, what book would you recommend that all parents read? Well, can it be mine? I know that's naughty, but I was like, my book, The Ultimate Guide to School and Home, I wrote with Anna Tullamans, who's a parent, and her son Daniel's now 28. And we wrote this book together and it's, I, I still pick it up and go, that's so good. The reason it's so good, when you have a parent and teacher working together, that is the ultimate authoring. Like you can read a lot of books by people on the spectrum and it's their perspective of the spectrum. You can read books by an OT and it'll be sensory. But Anna and I have really put in the stuff that works for home and school and from she, she did work in schools as well, so and from my experience. But we also use like a lot of questions I'd asked on Facebook, getting feedback from parents and teachers. So I love that book because it's really got all the thoughts in one spot. So the ultimate guide to school and home, and it has a key on the front, and I think that would be the one book I'd recommend. Fantastic. Number five, I know we're up to four, what is your top unfinished bucket list item? Well... It's actually getting all kids in full-time education. Like I'm, I'm happy for parents to home, homeschool and, in fact, more and more of my parents are moving that way. But I don't think it's a choice parents necessarily would have made when they first found out their child was on the spectrum. 
So I used to, my, my motto is making it a success, but I used to have this little dare to make a difference where I'd sort of try and make a difference in schools, but I get the frustration that parents have. Um, you know, I, sometimes it's really hard to find the right school for your kid and they're so distressed. I have a lot of kids this year in high school who are homeschooled and I, I totally agree with that. But my passion would be every child gets the support, whether it's at home. I mean, parents having to leave their job to educate their child, that isn't, that's not on my bucket list. My bucket list, every child gets the education they need because I know all of these kids can have a future life that is very fulfilling for them and for our community and they can add so much if we give them the right tools like all kids. So for me, my bucket list would be that all kids get the support, the time and resources to be fully educated, whether that's at home or school. Yeah. Mm, that sounds like an interesting journey that we'll be following you closely on. I think I need to be 20 years younger. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there are so many people that will be willing to jump on that bandwagon with you and continue to carry it on. Yeah, okay. I need some anyone there who wants to take that. Because that, I, I, I've been trying for 20, the, 20 years, 18 years now actually, and I'm seeing kids in less and less full-time school. I mean, I've, I've got a five-year-old in kindy at the moment who's just done partial school days. I just, that's not right. They should, they should be in full-time school. I, I, I just, anyway, let that horse run away, but yeah. <laughs> All righty, last question. Um, if you were to only offer one piece of advice to parents, what would it mm. be? Which is my other favourite saying. It's embrace difference to make a difference love your child for who they are where they're at now and really embrace their different way of learning and engaging because when you're truly present to your son or daughter I mean and for me as a teacher I love every child I've ever taught you know when I embrace that child when I truly embrace who they are we can go a long way and you can go a long way as parents too but when you're pushing back and trying to like fix things don't fix it just really enjoy your child for who they are get down and enjoy what they're doing and you will just feel so energized for loving them for who they are and and I think your gut feel is that's what you should do and sometimes it's just having permission to embrace difference to make a difference yeah Love it. I love it so much. Thank you so much, Sue. Um, people will be wanting to know where they can find out more about you. I know you have just started your own podcast, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and how we can get our hands on that. Yeah, so it's just the Sue Larky podcast, um, So and it's L-A-R-K-E-Y. I highly recommend people sign up for my tip sheets because they are just weekly emails, and I always try and put in the title what they are, so you can just open them if they're helpful for you. Um, and I now offer online learning that's really popular because you can watch it anytime, anywhere. I mean, people are telling me, oh, it's like my new favourite Netflix show. Um, but I think if you just want like five hours of this sort of easy listening, succinct information to make a difference, then online learning is a really good way to go because you can't always get to workshops and the information. And I think too, sometimes it's nice to absorb things at your own pace not just be a full day where you're like, whoa, you know. Um, so I, I would really encourage her to just jump on my website. Um, there's a link there to my podcast, uh, links to um, my newsletters and all the rest. And I look forward to um, meeting some new people online.
Awesome. So is that suelarkey.com.au? Dot .au. Dot so, yeah, S-U-E-L-A-R-K-E-Y. Yeah. And, and the same, Facebook will have an amazing Facebook community. Oh, actually, just a little aside. I am starting next term a parent support group, just a closed Facebook group for parents because on Facebook, I just had a lot of parents who newly diagnosed kids who just want a private place to share with other parents. So I'm just going to start. It'll just be a group where people share ideas and work together and feel supported because I work with a lot of people in regional areas who don't have access to a local support group. So I'm thinking we can do it online. So um, keep an eye out for that too. But you'll have to ask to join the group. It won't be like open to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful because I think parents feel so much more safer and secure in that closed group environment. And we can, you know, share what's on our mind and get suggestions and strategies from other parents who are also um, going through this on a similar journey. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks so much, Sue. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in today. I really hope that parts of the episode resonated with you, but more importantly, I hope that you feel inspired to take action from home base. If there is someone who you know who would benefit from this podcast, please share it with them. Now, I love connecting with you all, so if you head on over to Facebook and Instagram, you can find me there. All you have to do is search Homebase Hope. Now, if you subscribe to this podcast by heading to iTunes and hitting the subscribe button, every fortnight you will get an instant notification of the latest interview. And if you do love the show, then please leave a five-star review because this will help more people discover us and it will help us inspire more positive change in people living on the spectrum. So until next time, I encourage you to open your mind, respect the differences, and above all, believe that you can make a difference from home base. See you soon, guys. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.